song before the lesson will be number 524. <coughs> 524, the great redeemer. If it's convenient, let's stand together for this song. 524, we'll sing the first and last verses. How I love the great Redeemer, who is doing so much for me. With what joy I tell the story of the love that makes men free. Till my earthly life is ended, I will send, I will send songs above. Beside the crystal sea, more and more my soul shall be praising Jesus and his love. He is everything to me, to me. He is, he is everything to me, and everything shall always be. I will never cease to raise a song of gladness in sing of saving love. Life and light and joy is he, the precious friend who died for me. Glory be to him forever. In the praises to Christ the Lamb. He has filled my life with sunshine. He has made me what I am. the love of the mighty friend above and be his forevermore. He is everything to me, to me. He is everything to me and everything shall always be. I will never cease to raise a song of gladness in his praise. soul shall sing of saving love. Life and light and joy is he, the precious friend who died for me. Maybe see them. You mark the invitation song number 71. Mark the gentle voice number 71. <clears throat> This is the fifth lesson in our series on questions from God. The first generation from Egypt was blessed beyond measure. God visited them with wonders on the wings of mercy that had never been witnessed before. 
He liberated them from harsh bondage and ceaseless stings of the taskmaster's will. With great rejoicing, they left Egypt and arrived at the Red Sea. But one backward look at the approaching Egyptian army negated any positive impact of God's mighty works and supplanted many years of misery with fanciful notions of a diet of variety and plenty. The psalmist affirmed, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. Psalm 106.7 The underlying reason for Israel's inability to properly perceive the marvel of God's works in Egypt is because they viewed them through eyes of idolatry. Israel committed whoredoms in Egypt. Ezekiel 23.3 And played the harlot in the land of Egypt. Ezekiel 23.19 Idolatry is the perversion of the mind and an invitation to the flesh. It is folly to expect spiritual discernment from one whose mental and physical prostration is at the feet of a sculptured piece of wood or stone and whose heart is fixed on the flesh. Israel committed spiritual adultery because they longed for physical adultery. They knew they would never be called into account or suffer judgment by a rock or a stone. Moses was a mighty man of God and very neat, meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Numbers 11.3 but he was not immune to improper thinking about God that generates sins in word and deed. When he heard Israel weeping in unbelief, ingratitude, and craving for the flesh plots of Egypt, he was crippled with discouragement. In Job-like fashion, he commenced an angry tirade against God. He accused God of afflicting him withholding his favor from him, placing upon him the sole burden of providing for the nation, inquired of him how this was to be accomplished. And if circumstances were going to remain as they were, he asked God to kill him. Moses not only witnessed, but was personally involved in God's great miracles of judgment upon Egypt, the Red Sea, and those that followed. He spent 40 days with God on Mount Sinai. When Israel panted for the physical provisions of Egypt, he informed them that God would bountifully meet their needs with bread and meat and greeted the dawn of the day with the earth bathed in bread and quail so numerous that they covered the camp. Ezekiel 16, 13. And yet, when God apprised him that he would furnish Israel with such an abundance of meat that it will last for a month, Moses momentarily adopted the unbelief of the nation and foolishly said, Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together to suffice them? Numbers 11 22, it is inconceivable that Moses could have uttered such sentiments. 
This scene is an amazing thing to behold. It is a portrayal of a man of God struggling with himself and God. It is an intimate look into the nature of man and God. It is a depiction of man's weakness and God's strength, man's anger and God's calmness, man's patience exhausted and God's patience magnified, man out of control and God in perfect control, man's sin and God's mercy. God listened to Moses and void of rebuke responded to him in forbearing love and gentleness. He focused not on the exceedingly inappropriateness of Moses' words, but on the greatness of his need. He called for 70 elders of Israel that would bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone, Numbers eleven seventeen. He gave ear to Moses' faithless assertion, insinuating that he, God, was incapable of furnishing sufficient meat to feed Israel for a month, and then replied with a simple but penetrating question, Is the Lord's hand waxed? Short. Numbers eleven twenty three. There are occasions when a multiplicity of words cloud the issue at hand and numb the mind, while one unadorned question gets to the heart of the matter. Moses arrayed Naaman's. Behold, I thought. Second Kings five eleven against God said. Numbers eleven twenty one, And God's plain question, consisting of just six words, brought an abrupt halt to Moses' bitter assault against God. He immediately went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Numbers eleven twenty four, Sin is inexcusable. It is barren of justification. But there is a vast difference in a temporary display of human weakness suffused in a contrite and penitent spirit and a raised fist of self-will and rebellion in the face of God. God looks with agape love on all men, but he has a special look of affection for those who possess a meek and humble spirit and a contrite heart that trembles at his word. That's the picture of Isaiah 66, verse 2. The transgression of Moses was a brief and transient expression of a man of God, wholly exhausted in his attempt to lead and fulfill the needs of a nation of unbelievers and ingrates. Just one rebellious son or daughter can so disrupt a household to the point of depleting the strength of the parents in their effort to remedy the problems and restore the unity and serenity of family life. Multiply one times hundreds of thousands allows one to peer into the world of Moses and behold the extreme difficulties with which he had to contend for 40 years. There has never been a spiritual man who has not struggled with himself and God 
under the heavy weight of the trying times of life. And thus we remember, as well we should, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. That should be ever one of the guiding principles of a man's fleeting sojourn on earth. Moses moved from his own failing to a mighty plague of death on Israel to an ugly rupture in his own family. Compelled by envy, Miriam and Aaron arrayed themselves against Moses, their own brother, because of his marital choice and especially his position of authority over Israel. Moses' meek and humble spirit made it exceedingly difficult to censure his own brother and sister and defend his divinely appointed position of leadership over Israel. And so, God intervened. He reproved Aaron and Miriam for their sin, confirmed Moses' leadership status, and struck Miriam with leprosy. When Moses entreated God for her healing, God raised his seventh question to him. If her father and mother had spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Numbers 12, 14. An expression of contempt and shame over the failure of one's duty before God? Deuteronomy 25, 9. Public sin demands public shame. And Miriam, a prophetess and leader of women in Israel, was publicly humiliated and shamed with seven days of separation from the camp of Israel. It is a sign of national deterioration when shame ceases to be a companion of sin. And sin is ignored, excused, embraced, laughed at, and lauded. Only fools mock sin. Proverbs 14, 9. The time had come for God's judgment to befall the seven pagan nations in Canaan, whose iniquity has surpassed the full mark of Genesis 15, 16. Requested by the people and accepted and authorized by God, Moses commissioned one leader from each tribe, except Levi, to survey the land and report back to the people of Israel. Ten of these men returned with an evil report of unbelief, affirming God, Israel's inability to take the land. Tears of rebellion displaced the quiet of the night. A captain was selected to lead them back to Egypt, and Joshua and Caleb faced death by stoning because they urged the people to rise up, obey God, and take the land. In the midst of this chaotic scene of national mutiny, God raised two questions to Moses. How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Numbers 14, 11. God's threat to annihilate Israel was replaced by mercy and pardon in his response to Moses' fervent intercession for Israel and his plea for the preservation of God's great name among the heathen. God's tenth question to Moses and Aaron included in this final query reads, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me. Number 1427. These last three culminating questions point to the end of God's patience with this wicked first generation from Egypt. They were beyond redemption. They worshiped idol in Egypt, and idolatry is the worship of self. God said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Hebrews 3 twin. 
Can a generation discern the ways of God when they gaze with affection on a golden calf and exclaim, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 33, 4. They were as spiritually blind as Pharaoh. They could not perceive the ways of God because they viewed God through the eyes of idol worship, which is the veneration of self and its love and lust for carnal delights. An idol is the product of the mind. The mind is the mainspring of life. When the principal mechanism of a man's being is deified, there are no ends to which he will not go in an effort to satisfy his own will and gratify the flesh. God slew the ten spies who formulated the evil report and consumed that generation with 40 years in the wilderness. Liberalism is idolatry. It sits on the throne of man's heart. It governs his mind and bars the entrance to rational thought. Liberalism ruins everything it touches. It ravages saneness in political and educational systems. In its consummated form, it is evil. It pays homage to abortion clinics, transforms government into an ATM machine, work into entitlement, and homosexuality into normalcy. The spirit of liberalism has devastated many congregations of the church. The elders of Israel in Babylonian captivity sat before Ezekiel with idols in their heart. Ezekiel 14, 3. And every Sunday, members of these congregations sit in their assemblies with the idol of liberalism in their heart. They do not believe in the exclusiveness of the church that Jesus said, I will build with all of its components. Their preachers could not conscientiously preach the exclusive gospel that Peter preached on Pentecost of Acts 2 with its exclusive church of Christ. They love the emotional high that liberalism affords in worship activities of human devisings. They view law as legalism, grace as permissive, and obedience as an effort to earn one's salvation. When the idol of liberalism rules the heart, man has become his own God. The story of Balaam is a narrative of a human tragedy. Balaam was a fortune teller who had acquired some art in divination, some fame. He was widely known and heralded as a man who could curse folks and they would be cursed and bless others and they would be blessed. And he also had a degree of a relationship with God. Jesus said, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If a man should gain nothing but lose everything in bartering his soul for the wealth of the world... What does that say about a man who exchanges his soul for a handful of money? Paul described covetousness as idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. Balaam is the embodiment of covetousness. His life is a lamentable depiction of a man who forfeited his life and sold his soul for a small bag of money. Peter declared he loved the wages of unrighteousness, 2 Peter 2.15. His love of money blinded his eyes to every spiritual truth. He was incapable of seeing anything but money in the hand, and he would do anything to obtain it. He became an idolater, and money was his God. As the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness came to a close, Israel encamped in the plains of Moab. In view of what Israel had done to the Amorites, Balak, the king of Moab, was mightily vexed. He sent messengers to Balaam with the rewards of divination, Numbers 22-7, in an effort to persuade him to come to Moab and curse Israel in hopes 
of securing victory in battle. Balaam offered them the hospitality of his home, pledging to inform them of God's will regarding their request. This gave rise to God's first question to Balaam. What men are these with thee? Numbers 22, 9. In his downward plunge to the loss of everything that means anything, Balaam had not yet arrived at the point where in just a moment's reflection, he could have discerned how crucial this question is to life. Spiritual horrors result when those who walk in the light befriend those who walk in the dark. Who are those women with you? Would have been a potent question to pose to the righteous descendants of Seth who summoned to their beds the wicked descendants of Cain. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. David could have saved himself from adultery and a host of woes if he had pondered this question regarding Bathsheba as she was on her way to his house. It was too late for Jehoshaphat to reflect upon the question, Who is that man with you? After he had joined affinity with Ahab. 2 Chronicles 18.1 as a result of Jehoshaphat's foolish decision, his ruling son killed all of his other sons. Athaliah, his daughter-in-law, murdered his great-grandchildren. His ruling son and grandchildren were so corrupt they were destroyed by the hand of divine judgment. And for 15 years, Judah suffered inconceivable spiritual damage under the rule of his son, grandson, and daughter-in-law. The whole of inspiration expounds incessantly upon the dangers involved in the unequal yokes of life. Those who stand with God, truth, and righteousness with those who constitute the opposition. One of the most inane bonds of life is the marriage of a Christian with a non-Christian. The union of one who has embraced the one gospel, church, plan of salvation, pattern of worship, and order, organizational structure with one who possesses no spiritual empathy with these divine truths. In the days of courtship, when two divergent views of truth exist, the one who is devoted to the truth would be exceedingly wise to deliberate upon the question, who is that young man or that young woman with you? Balaam answered God's question and said, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse this people, for they are blessed. God's answer to it. From this point forward, every action of Balaam will be taken with full knowledge of God's will about this matter. <laughs> More honorable princes with greater promises of reward returned to Balaam. If only this narrative of Balaam's life could have terminated with Balaam's response to these messengers. Now hear this. His response to these honorable, more honorable messengers. With greater rewards in their hand. And here was his response. If Balak could give me his house of silver and gold, full of it, I cannot go beyond the words of the Lord to do less or more. Numbers 22, 18. What a statement that was. If Balaam could have died right then, he'd have been in the arms of safety. 
He had a relationship with God. God was using him. He made the perfect response. The nature of Balaam's heart and the idol of money that sat there was revealed when he inquired of the Lord with one word. He said, let me go back to the Lord and see what more he had to say regarding this matter. Numbers 22, 19. God had already said all he wanted to say. But Balaam with this idol of money sitting in his heart was not satisfied with it. He wanted something more that would allow him to go on his way to what he did not realize was the destruction of his life and the loss of his soul. God's permissive will witnessed the commencement of Balaam's journey to Moab, but his anger, God's anger, was kindled because he went. Numbers 22, 22. God in his great love is watching a man start on a journey that's going to end in eternal disaster. Three times Balaam beat his donkey because unknown to him, an angel had obstructed his path. Balaam's conversation with the donkey, whose ability to speak was granted by God, is striking proof of how irrational a man can become when covetousness rules in his heart. Balaam, as God permitted this dumb donkey to carry on this conversation with him. When God permitted Balaam to see the angel, he inquired of Balaam with God's second question. Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Number 2232. A depiction of his rebellious spirit and determination to reap the rewards of unrighteousness regardless of the consequences. Allowed to continue his journey, Balaam arrived in Moab and informed Balak that he could only speak as God directed. Wonderful. Four oracles from God ended with Israel blessed, Balak in wrath, and Balaam in disappointment. Later, Balaam finally achieved his desire as men in Israel committed fornication with women in Moab and worshipped their idols and gods. And 24,000 died under the hand of divine judgment. The Apostle John pointed to the counsel of Balaam as the basis for this tragedy, Revelation 2.14. Balaam, in essence, he so wanted this money. He so wanted his idol of money that he took Balak aside and said, you want Israel cursed. You just send these seductive women in Moab in and among those men of Israel and see what happens. That'll bring about God's curse on these people. During the course of his first oracle from God concerning Israel, here's what Balaam declared. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. What a wonderful statement. <coughs> Revelation, or Numbers 23, 10. Lamentably, in God's authorized battle against Medium, 
Balaam died by the sword of Israel. Numbers 31.8. In kinship with God's questions to Lot, his two questions to Balaam, Balaam with their implications, are extraordinary exhibitions of his, the inexhaustible mercy of God. Mercy standing in the way of a man's relentless pursuit of the root of all evil. Mercy endeavoring to bar the path to man's eternal ruin. Mercy striving to save a man from himself. Oh, how powerful are these monumental questions from God that reach down hopefully in man's heart trying to bring him to his senses. Look at the difference in Moses and Balaam. Moses sinned grievously against God with his lips. But Moses was a man who loved God and loved the truth and wanted to do the will of God. And what he did was in a moment of grave weakness that he covered with a contrite heart. God's questions penetrated his mind. God raised two great questions to Balaam in an effort to bring him to his senses. But it was... Too late because Balaam had already made money his idol. He heard the questions. But they did, they did not reach his heart, his mind, the mainspring of life. And he continued on his disastrous journey to the loss of his life on the field of battle. Killed by the sword of the very people he endeavored to bring a curse upon. And worse than that, the loss of his soul forever and ever. If you're here and have never obeyed the gospel of Christ, we hope these questions from God have touched your mind. God's mercy interceding in your life through the gospel. And that by faith you repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You've done that and send in some public way or need the prayers of the church. We hope you'll come as we encourage you with this song while we stand and sing.